We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 3, start at verse 1, and we'll go up to 21. So, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron, his firstborn, Amnon, of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Micah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithraim, of Eglis, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rispa, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not given you into the hands of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? Gods do so to Abner and more also. If I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner said to messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your, make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And he said, Good, I would make a covenant with you, but one thing requires of you, that is, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messages to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, my Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Patiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. 
So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Thank you very, very much. I tell you, Ruthie, you did wonderfully well. I thought that those tough names in verse 5 were the hardest in the passage. And then I realized, actually, Ruthie, you had lots of hard names to read as well. So you handled those brilliantly. And so did Hannah, I must say, really well read and so helpful to have the Bible put in front of us in that way. Now, I think that uh, Ruthie and Abigail are going off to join Debbie behind the screens. And uh, they'll have their own little session there on 2 Samuel chapter 3. The rest of us are going to be looking at the same part of the Bible here. And to give you a bit of advance notice, uh, we've got, we've got uh, the chance to ask questions afterwards. So that if there's anything that's not clear, majorly controversial, and you want your say, then the gags are off and you can do your own talking as well. Okay, just to let you know that that's coming up so that uh, you can store up any questions you have while we go along. So, let's begin and start by asking the question, why doesn't God get his skates on and do stuff a little bit more quickly than he does? You knock on the doors and people say there are two things that put them off. God, one is suffering in the world. Why doesn't God do something about that quickly rather than let it drag on and on and on? The other question people ask us is why doesn't God stop the infighting that goes on in the church, the huge disunity that you get amongst Christians? Why doesn't God sort that? And those of us who maybe have been to churches in the past know better than anybody else how much disunity there is in churches. Now, there are times when the Bible says things that are of special interest to people who don't go to church, and it's like a special word for them. But I think actually this part of the Bible we're looking at tonight is a special word for those who are part of the church scene and who have experienced the civil war that often seems to rage in Christian churches. Now, of course, that kind of subject is of interest to people who are outside as well as those who are inside the church because people outside the church, just like the people who were watching in the days that this part of the Bible was written, for example, the Philistines and the other nations around Israel at that time would have looked in and wondered, how can you say that there is a God ruling when there is such a civil war going on amongst his people? They would have asked that question then if they were outsiders looking in. And that's exactly what is there in chapter 3. If you look at verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. There's civil war going on in these two camps, who are, both of them, part of God's people. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it, that in the church of today, we do PR quite well, and therefore we can 
try and keep our civil war from general view outside. We don't want to wash our dirty linen in public, and there's sense in that too. But open the Bible and you find it is amazingly honest that there are divisions amongst those who claim to be God's people so that you and I know today that this is not something that is new. It's been going on since the time of David and before. And so that we can learn lessons from what went on then to help us in the divisions that we face and feel around us today. Now, just to put it in its uh, little place, in uh, this case, David is the king that God has set over his people as their ruler. But there are many in that country who are loyal to the previous king called Saul. They want to hang on to power. And church politics is what's going on. Remember that uh, Israel, the nation of Israel that lived in that part of the world, they in the Old Testament are the people of God, if you like, the church of the Old Testament. And David is God's king of the Old Testament. And they help us to understand what goes on in the New Testament. So David is God's king that is getting us ready to understand what it would be like with God's king in the New Testament, who is Jesus. And the Old Testament nation of Israel is what we find today in the church of the New Testament. They are God's people. And, of course, wider than just Jewish people in the New Testament. But David is there to show us something about what it will be like with Jesus. Now, he's not like Jesus all the time. We're going to see tonight that he's not like Jesus all the time. But in the Old Testament, he is there as the Old Testament moon, if you like, to the sun, reflecting the sun that we will find in the New Testament. God's king that David is helping us to get ready to meet. But just as uh, in the New Testament there is great opposition to God's king that God has put over his own people, well, you find that that is true in the story of David. There is great resistance to God's king, the one that God has put over his people. So the Old Testament is getting us ready to understand the New Testament when that day comes. So there are lessons there that we can learn from the old that apply for us today. And the first lesson we want to learn, there are two things here to encourage us tonight. The first lesson is this, that there is growth in the midst of opposition. There is growth in the midst of opposition. Opposition seems big, but there is growth in the midst of opposition. Verse 1 tells us that uh, the enemies of uh, God's king are losing ground while David is growing stronger and stronger. And that's seen in the list of sons that are born to him in verse 2. I'm glad that Hannah read all those names because I now don't have to. You see, it's sons secure 
the position of the king. So this kingdom has got a future. It means Hebron won't lack a king when the king has got so many sons to succeed him. Whereas Saul's house has no other heir than the puppet king Ishbosheth, who Abner has put in charge. No one waiting in the wings to succeed him. David is the one with sons ready to follow him. And so his house is strong. Now I know when you read about David and the different wives, different sons, so that raises questions for us. Marriage in the Bible is between one man and one woman for life. And when people have extra wives like David has here, well, the Bible honestly tells us about it, but there's no enthusiasm. When uh, you see how David has multiple wives, you need to understand he is not like Jesus at this point. Jesus has his bride, the church. He looks nowhere else. But David has these different wives. And I'm afraid that uh, they are therefore going to be the reason for trouble that will come down the line. Because there are names here that we'll read about. I didn't have time to tell you the uh, uh, likely trouble ahead, but uh, the first one, for example, is going to be uh, committing rape. There'll be multiple murders going on in David's family, some of them. So I'm afraid these sons are not entirely good news. We are going to hear their names again. They're going to be the cause of terrible pain for David and his family. But what it means here is that David's kingdom is not about to shrink. And that's something we really, really need to learn today because the prevailing view out there is that God's kingdom is getting smaller and smaller and soon to disappear. They would see largely the arrows going the other way. So, for example, you've got uh, Richard Dawkins and the like saying that it's more likely to be with God's kingdom being big now, but it's shrinking all the time, and in the end, it's soon going to disappear from view. We're just dinosaurs. It's only a matter of time before people get wise and turn away from Christianity. And uh, all the old ones will be the last ones to turn the lights out. Well, that's true of people outside the church, but actually there is a number that thinks like that within the church as well, particularly, I think, within the established church. So the Church of England has as a denomination those who run it, who look down their noses at Bible-loving Christians and think our time is up. And this passage is really relevant to the civil war raging within the Church of England itself at the moment, where it seems that secular culture is ruling the church like a usurping, powerful general. And the historic denominations that actually are disintegrating 
are afraid to answer our culture with a word in case it changes their position and they lose ground. And it sadly is true that our denomination has within it largely those who oppose Bible believers today, people like us who say that ultimately we should listen to God's King and culture should listen to God's King rather than the church listening to what culture demands. So there is this feeling even amongst established churches where in the end uh, those who hold on to God's King and the truth about him in the Bible ultimately will disappear from view. But while that opposition seems long and tiresome, there is a lot of heartwarming evidence around that all the young blood seems to be in Bible-loving churches. That's where the real growth is taking place, and there is real growth taking place. Our church is a young church. It's part of a team of 13 new churches starting up in London just this year. That's just only a part of our network. There are others too. And that's where the real growth can be found. And just like in Abner's time, the historic churches are largely without leaders ready to carry on the baton in the future. They belong to a disintegrating kingdom, just like Abner did. And 2 Samuel matches our situation today perfectly. It's important that we learn from that. That there is growth despite the opposition. That's point one. Point two is that opposition will destroy Opposition, Because if you look at verse, C, verse 6, you see from verse 6 onwards, that's what happens. The kingdom of Ishbosheth and Abner implodes. Abner in verse 6 is uh, making himself strong. And that actually means that he is making himself Saul. I don't know if that is working, yes. Abner is making himself Saul. You see that, don't you? He takes one of Saul's concubines. Now, when you do things like that, you are effectively claiming royal privilege to have one of the royal mistresses. And so, therefore, the puppet king, Ishbosheth, asks him in verse 7, in effect, Abner, what on earth are you doing? At that point, Abner flips. Because if Ishbosheth won't lay down and play dead after all that he has done for Ishbosheth and his family and his friends, well, if he's going to be ungrateful like that, Abner will go and join David. But what's really serious here is not just that Abner is making himself Saul with Saul's concubine. What's really astonishing is that Abner is making himself God. If you look at what he's actually doing, you see that in three different ways. First, you see in verse 8 
that Abner says he is showing steadfast love. Now let me tell you, the Bible reserves those words to describe God's love fairly uniquely. Abner saying, actually, my love is just like that. And then in verse 9, he's really claiming to do what God does in verse 9, where Abner says, he will accomplish what God has promised. Do you get that? He is saying that he will do what God said God would do. But he is in that process, giving away the fact that he knows exactly what God promised. And in fact, in verse 18, he tells the elders what God has promised as well. So, if he's known all along that God had promised David the kingdom, why has Abner tried to prop up an opposing kingdom for so long? Yeah, he's claiming to be God, but he's actually been acting anti-God. And he's claiming he will fulfill God's promises and to make sure the kingdom goes to David. Oh yes, Mr. Abner will do that, no one else. Never mind what God said. And again in verse 12, it's astonishing. If you look at what he's saying, he says, to whom does the kingdom belong? And you read on and he means the answer is him. You have to deal with me. Only my hand will bring the whole of Israel to you. He dares to say. Oh, here's a man who can do what God says he can do. And only Abner would be able to do that. Astonishing, isn't it? How he's setting himself in that kind of way. But now, check out the response of God's king. What does God, God's king do? with uh, an arrogant man like that. Well, the first thing he does is he acts with authority. Yes, he'll accept Abner's proposal. But that doesn't mean that he endorses Abner's thinking. He knows that Abner's motivated by a mixture of disillusionment with his old king and vindictiveness towards uh, him as well. But the point is that bad motives can play into the hands of a sovereign God who will achieve those bad motives to do exactly what he intends. So David agrees to meet with him. But when he tells him that he will agree to meet with him, he puts Abner under his own authority. Look at verse 13. Abner, you will not see my face unless you fulfill this requirement that I will make of you. I will put down the conditions under which we will meet. He puts Abner under his authority. Doesn't let David, uh, let Abner make the rallying, feel he's in charge. Now I know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what he's asking for another wife? But the point is this, that Michal is Saul's daughter. And David's first wife, if you know the story in 1 Samuel. And part of Saul's persecution of David is that he married Michal off to somebody else. Now David wants her back, not just because that's his first wife, and I dare say he felt 
affection. They'd been through a lot together, if you know the story at the start. They were together in the way that they had to escape or help David to escape. But here's the thing. At this stage in their history, if you want to unite David's house and Saul's house together, then unity in the palace is a good place to start with Saul's daughter and David's king together again. So it's good politics. But there's a sad human story in there as well because obviously her second husband was close to her. And uh, uh, very sad that David would uh, want her back. But it is also interesting, isn't it, that his authority is there in verse 14 when David doesn't bypass the official king Ishbosheth, but he sends messages to Ishbosheth saying, I want Micah back. So, yes, he'll say that to Abner, but he doesn't bypass the official channels either. He sends a message to Ishbosheth as well. And notice the response in Mahanaim, which is the capital of Ishbosheth's kingdom. Notice the response there to David's demand. Both men, Abner and Ishbosheth, obey the new king. They give him exactly what he wants. They are both men under God's king's authority. And that's exactly as it should be. Notice that about God's king. But notice something else about God's king. And Hannah brought this out really well in the children's slot, as did uh, Rob in the setup of the service. Notice the king's generosity. There is not just forgiveness, there is a feast. Do you see that? There's a feast for Abner and his delegation when they come. And there's no recriminations about what Abner's done in the past. Abner finds a generous and a gracious welcome and he leaves in peace, which is staggering given that it was his rebellion that caused David so much trouble. But this is exactly a glimpse of Jesus as well, isn't it? Rebels find peace. That's exactly how the king of the New Testament responds as well. So when you look in the New Testament at the words that the Apostle Paul wrote describing in Colossians 1 what it was like for ordinary people who'd become Christians, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That could be also said of Abner, couldn't it? Those words fit Abner. But look at the next verse. And he has now reconciled those people in his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach above him. This is how generously the king deals with his enemies. Those who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, are now brought into the king's peace. And a feast is promised when those rebels finally come into his presence.
Is that astonishing? You see, that is why you and me are able to go out and visit people on our estate, even if they may be like Abner, entirely rebellious against God's king, people who are alienated and hostile in mind towards him, doing evil deeds, we can go and do, uh, make our visits and chat to them on our estate, not because suddenly they will flip around and suddenly start being good. We do it because our king is so generous. And it is because of his generosity that the rebellion ends. In Abner's case, in our case, and in their case as well. So it is just amazing that we have a king who has great authority, but great generosity too. What uh, lessons can we pick up and put in our pockets before we go home today? Well, certainly one lesson, I think, is that if there is anyone who is unconvinced about Christianity and wants to bin it because there is so much infighting in, in, in the church, well, that would be a foolish thing to do because it would be to ignore that there is a God who is growing his kingdom at the same time. And to see the living God at work today, if I can put it like this, you have got to look at what he is doing through the smokescreen of church politics. But it is a very bad excuse to say because there's church politics, there is no God in charge of his people. He is. And it is much better to be like Abner, who might once have been facing one way, to recognize that you are on the wrong side and realize that you have to cross over to God's king. My friend, if I can say this to every single person in this room, unless you have made yourself a very clear decision to cross over from one side to serving God's king on the other side, then you will continue opposing God's king, however nice a person you might be, and whatever history of kindness you might have, the opposition to God's king will continue unless you become an Abner. Go to him and say, I will serve you from now on as my king. That crossover has got to take place. No two ways about that. Point one. The second lesson I think there is here is for an Ishbosheth denomination, if I can call it like that, an Ishbosheth denomination like ours that won't say boo to a dominant culture because we don't want to lose further ground. And therefore we compromise, we compromise, we compromise with the Abner dominant culture of our day because we are an Ishbosheth weak church that doesn't want to get on the wrong side of our culture. 
there is, I think, a great warning here, not just for Ishbosheth liberal churches, but if I can put it like this, Ishbosheth prosperity churches, who equally won't dare to question the sexual lifestyle of their members, just like uh, Ishbosheth dared question the sexual lifestyle of Abner in case their members stop sponsoring them and giving them the money to continue and therefore to keep them sweet they don't ask too many questions they just simply go along with the game and we need to be calling Ishbeset churches not just people who aren't Christians we need to be calling on Ishbeset churches, liberals, prosperity to come over to acknowledging the rule of God's king and to accept his authority to say who he will include and who he will not include and to value his generosity and to see that we who are hostile can come into peace that's a message for liberal and prosperity churches just as it was uh, from Abner and uh, Ishbosheth as well then lastly what happens if you are someone who wants to submit to Jesus as to a personal king but you do have this question in the back of your mind well why is he taking so long to stop the things that are wrong in this world to stop the suffering that is wrong in the world to stop the disunity that is wrong in his church it is a long long wait isn't it it starts like that in chapter 3 doesn't it there was a long war why does it have to be so long Well, perhaps part of the answer is that he gives people like Abner and Ishbosheth the experience of living outside his kingdom so that ultimately their lives implode and become unbearable and then they finally long to be inside his kingdom rather than outside it and he gives people in other words time to change sides if David had marched on Mahanim before he could have done that but by giving time Abner comes across and becomes part of his kingdom and I want to suggest that's part of the reason why the New Testament tells us that God waits and tolerates long times of civil war even within his own church it is to allow people time to come into his kingdom in fact the apostle Peter said as much in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 he says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness 
but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why he waits. He's not slow to keep his promise. He will keep it. But in great patience, he waits to be generous. And I'll be grateful for that. Aren't you grateful that the Lord Jesus didn't come the night before you became a Christian? That he waited one more day for you to come in? Are you willing to wait one more day for someone else to come in? But that one more day means that we have one more day to get out into our estate and to make the most of it. Let's pray that God will do that and we'll then take questions and up any uh, questions that may remain. Perhaps in a moment of quiet you might like first to talk to God yourself. If you haven't crossed over, say, God, I want to be like Abner. I want Jesus to be my king from now on. In a moment of quiet, do that. But maybe that you just want to pray that God will help you to be just a bit more patient. Whatever it is, you make your own conversation with God first in quiet and then I'll pray for all of us after a few moments of quiet. Father Almighty, you are so unique. You so loved the world that you even gave your only son. Not just time, but you also gave your only son that whoever believes in you will not perish but have eternal life. Please would you graciously work in our world and in our own personal lives to cause implosions if necessary so that we might come to repentance and come over to Jesus as our King living under his very generous rule and authority. Help us to be those who are his servants from today trusting and reaching out to others in his name. For his glory we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Friends, I'm always convinced I'm as clear as mud, so let me ask you to ask questions to sort out any of the muddles I've left in your mind. <clears throat>